as you live your life. That's what the Hebrew thought of when he said he meditated. It wasn't so much sitting quietly and uh, having deep contemplation about the truth of God, although it could be that, but it was more than that. It was really desiring to have that instruction for right living be in the forefront of his mind all through the day. So meditating on God's law meant they're trying to live life after God, after God's ways. And the remainder of this psalm, the section that we read, really gives the results of that. What the psalmist experienced as he lived his life while meditating on God's law or instruction, it brought him wisdom and understanding, that is, understanding about what is true in life. It helped him to discern the sometimes subtle difference between good and evil. It kept him from evil, he says, and that's why he loved the law. The next section that we'll read is uh, down in verse 113 of that same psalm. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise, that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up, that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. So note again that the psalmist declared his love for God's instruction, his law, this time in contrast to the double-minded, those who would try to have it both ways, to obey God's law when it suits their needs, their desires, their agendas, when they agree, but to act against God's law when what they really want to do would involve rebelling against it in their thought and in their behavior. So here one needs to understand that the words love and hate that the psalmist uses don't simply refer to raw emotions, but rather to deeply held convictions. So loving here means agreeing with or acquiescing to something that's in your heart. And hating would be the opposite, to, to have a fixed attitude against or rejecting an idea or behavior that would be against God's law. That's what was meant here by loving and hating. So in this sense, the psalmist writes that he hates or rejects the posture of the double-minded man who would just pay lip service to God's law obeying it only when he wants to, and turning from it when it conflicts with his true agenda, what is really his personal desire. And in contrast, he says he loves God's law, acquiescing to it or bowing to it in a desire to honor God and to honor his instruction, especially when it might be particularly difficult and personally difficult for him to do so. So in verse 114, the psalmist places hope in God's word. And the Hebrew term that the ESV 
translates word, could also be translated testimony, as in the Ark of the Testimony that, as you recall, rested under the mercy seat in the tabernacle and in the temple. Remember that that Ark of the Covenant contained the stone tablets that had God's ten words, his ten commandments etched on them. This was God's testimony to his people, and it was placed in the Ark of the Covenant to remind them of the covenant promise that he had made to his people. So in effect, the psalmist is saying that he is placing his hope in God's word, his testimony, as it had been given to him in the covenant. And he prays in verse 116 that God would uphold him, would guide him throughout his life according to that promise. And recall that that promise that God made was a covenant promise given to Abraham in the desert. Many years before, it was a promise to bless and sustain Abraham and to make him and his descendants a blessing to many families and nations. So how then was Abraham to be a blessing to all the families on the earth? It was by believing God's promise, his placing of faith in God's promise. And that faith was, of course, counted to him as righteousness. So the psalmist in verse 116 here prays to be upheld, to be guided throughout his life according to the same promise as he places his hope, his faith in the Lord. We'll be looking in the sermon message at the New Testament teaching on the importance of God's covenant promise and the relationship then between God's law and the gospel. How we as followers of Christ, who was the one who fulfilled that law and in whom we have placed our faith, how we can still say that we love the law. Well, we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 3 in a few moments, but first I'd like you to recall what we read earlier in Psalm 119. Remember that the psalmist noted that he loved the law and he also placed his hope in God's word, in other words, in his testimony a term that is synonymous with law. And recall that the tablets of God's law were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, and that Ark memorialized God's covenant with Abraham that was made hundreds of years earlier. God's covenant with Abraham involved an unconditional promise, a promise that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. And Abraham believed God's promise, and that expression of faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And this fact is confirmed in the New Testament and outlined by Paul in the letter to the Galatians as well as elsewhere in the New Testament, but we'll be looking there. We, of course, have access to that New Testament and its detailing of the gospel, the good news that we are declared righteous in Christ, not by our wonderful character, not by great works of obedience, but by placing faith in Christ, who has become our righteousness. So the goal today is to look further into how the law relates to the gospel. It's an important question. How does the law relate to the gospel? It seems especially important during this time when we've been looking in detail at God's law for several weeks, especially as it's given in the Ten Commandments. So that's the goal of today's message, to better understand the relationship between law and gospel. 
And we'll look primarily at the first half of Galatians chapter 3 to help us out with that. So let's turn there. It's on page 973 in the Pew Bible. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. Beginning at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's holy and inspired word for us today. So the faith of Abraham was counted to him as righteousness. Paul reminds the Galatian believers of that crucial fact. The believers who are being addressed by Paul in this letter were thinking of going back to living by the law and effectively relying on obeying the law to receive God's blessing rather than living by, purely by faith. Paul was astounded that this was happening so soon after they had received the good news of the gospel and had received the Spirit by believing that gospel by faith. He couldn't believe it. You foolish Gentiles, who's bewitched you? Well, the reason that we have the record of Paul's inspired response to this sad development is that the same distortion of the gospel could happen to us. The Christians who Paul is addressing in this letter had heard the gospel. They had proclaimed to them, they understood what Christ had done for them on the cross. They had believed the gospel. They had trusted in Christ. They simply believed. They placed their faith in Christ and they had received the Spirit as a result. They did not receive the Spirit because they had been doing works of the law, not even by trying hard to obey the law. But now they were considering relying on works to be perfected or completed as true Christians. 
They were losing focus. They were distorting the gospel by trying to add works to it. And Paul refocuses them by looking back to the blessing that was promised to Abraham to give these Christians a better understanding of the gospel. So I think it's important that we really look closely at what that blessing was that was given to Abraham as it was recorded in Genesis in chapters 12 and 15. So we'll spend a few moments back in Genesis if you want to turn there. We'll look at um, a few verses in 12 and then in chapter 15. But first, in Genesis 12. This is the account of God's call to Abram, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God later gave Abram a different name. Abram means exalted father. And his name was changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, later in Genesis when the covenant stipulations were completed. But I'll just call him Abraham today for clarity. So God promised Abraham, who was living as a pagan in the land of Ur, hundreds of miles from the promised land, that he would have a large family, a spiritual family, actually, and that in him all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And this was the promise given to him. It was completed in chapter 15. So flip a couple pages to Genesis 15, and let's look at verse 5 and 6. This is where the Lord confirmed the covenant with Abraham. It's an important passage. Verse 5, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham traveled then from Ur to Palestine where God renewed his promise to give him innumerable spiritual offspring, as many as the stars in the sky, which to Abraham, standing in the dry desert air and looking up, must have seemed an impossibly large number, he who had no children. And Abraham believed that promised blessing, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was an unconditional promise, as I mentioned. It was a, really a unilateral covenant promise, a promise made to Abraham without any stipulation on his part. He had to do nothing but believe it. He just had to place his faith in the Lord. And the unconditional nature of the promise is shown in the way it was ratified in the following verses. So still in chapter 15 of Genesis, let's look at verse 7 in the following verses. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, 
and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So God promised this land to Abraham and his descendants. And if God didn't keep his promise, he would be as good as dead, the way those animals were. Well, God, of course, can't die, nor can he fail to keep a promise. So this was a vivid demonstration of the absolute nature of the promise that God was giving to Abraham. The promise of a land to Abraham and his spiritual descendants was ultimately a promise of a place for God to dwell with his people, a new Eden. So in the back of your mind, you should keep the trajectory of this whole story in place. Eden was, of course, the garden in Eden was a sanctuary for God to dwell with his people, with Adam and Eve. But that sanctuary failed because evil entered the garden. Adam fell and was expelled from that sanctuary. This was the replacement. The land promised to Abraham was to be a new sanctuary, a new place for God to dwell with his people. And as you know, the story of the Old Testament is largely about how the people failed in their efforts, in their call to remain faithful to God, to believe him. They went their own way. They fell the way Adam did and the sanctuary was not. It was no longer. The next step in that trajectory is when Christ came and he ushered in a kingdom, a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to be fulfilled eventually in a new creation, a new heaven and earth, when he comes again at the last day and completes the circle a restored Eden better than the original. That's the promise that was to be fulfilled in Christ that was initially given to Abraham. And the Galatian believers had heard this truth. Let's go back to uh, Galatians chapter 3. We'll spend the rest of our time in Galatians. So in chapter 3 of Paul's letter to uh, the Galatians, verse 1 says that Christ had been publicly portrayed to them as crucified. So they had received the teaching. 
they had received the truth that it was Christ's atoning death on the cross that had secured their salvation. And verse 2 reminds them that they had received the Holy Spirit by placing their faith in what the crucified Christ had accomplished for them in his atoning work. They had not received the Spirit by obeying the law. Now these believers were contemplating going back to the law to become perfected somehow, to become complete or true followers of Christ. And Paul was referring in this case to the people in Galatia who were um, teaching the, the people, they were false teachers who were basically teaching that in order to be complete as Christians, they needed to follow the Old Testament laws, the restrictive laws of um, dietary restrictions and the circumcision law and the restrictive Sabbath-keeping laws that the rabbis had developed over the years, other things as well. It was said that these laws needed to be followed if they were to be perfected or true Christians. And Paul is emphatic in saying no. In verses 5 and 6, he makes this clear. The Spirit came to the believers in Galatia the same way that the Spirit came to Abraham, through faith, not through works. And Abraham was counted righteous before God, not by any works of righteousness, but by faith, by believing the promise that God had given him. And then something remarkable is in verse 8. Look at that. It, it says, in effect, that the gospel had been preached beforehand to Abraham. We might ask, in what manner had the gospel been preached to Abraham? And to answer that question, we should look and be reminded of just what the gospel is. It means good news. The good news is that we don't have to be perfect to be right with God because Christ was perfect for us. So to be perfect as Christ was would mean obeying God's laws perfectly. But what if we can't obey Christ's laws or God's law perfectly? And verse 10 outlines what would happen, what becomes of people who do not perfectly obey the law. They are cursed. So the gospel, the good news, is that Christ bought our salvation for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse. He actually became a curse for us. He became sin for us. Any transgression of God's law is sin. And Christ took all of that on himself and actually became the most sinful human being ever as he hung on the cross in our place. That's what that word imputation means. Our sin was given to him, imputed to him. And in his taking that curse upon himself, his righteousness is given or imputed to us. So the good news of the gospel is that we can be counted righteous just as Abraham was by believing God by believing Christ, by believing that Christ has already accomplished for us what we could never do ourselves, namely be made right with God. Christ accomplished this by being sinless and paying the price for any and all sin that we enter into so that we can be justified in his sight. We can't do this, but Christ can, and he did accomplish this in history. 
So that's the gospel. You've heard it before, but that's the depth of it. That's the truth of it. But how did that gospel get preached to Abraham? Note that in verse 8, it says that the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. So the scripture is God speaking. It's God's word. So when we read that the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham, we understand it to mean that God preached the gospel to Abraham in promising a blessing to him. And he believed God's word, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the scripture, God's word, foresaw that Gentiles, in other words, people not physically descended from Abraham, would be justified by faith as well as he was. So the gospel that was preached to Abraham beforehand was that in him shall all nations be blessed. And we need to see that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, equates blessing with justification in verse 8. The blessing that Abraham was to bring to the nations, to the families of the earth, to the Gentiles, to all non-Jews, was a justification or a reconciliation, a being made right with God, being counted as righteous before God. And this is accomplished by believing God's promise by faith. So the blessing that Abraham was promised by God in approximately 2000 BC was believed by Abraham, and that belief resulted in his being made right with God, it being counted to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. And of course, this justification or salvation was fulfilled or completed some 2,000 years later by Christ's cross work. And all non-Israelites, all non-Jews, all Gentiles would be blessed the same way if they placed faith in Christ. So this is really faith in the same promise that was given so long ago to Abraham, that believing God, believing the gospel is counted as righteousness being made right with God. That is amazing grace. So Paul was dumbfounded that, the Christ, that these Christians in, in Galatia were, these Christians who had had Jesus Christ publicly proclaimed to them, they understood the gospel. Why would they be going back? Why would they be considering going back to living under the law in order to be complete Christians? To do so would be to come under the curse as verse 10 makes clear, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So equally perplexing is why a 21st century Christian would want to do the same, to try to live by the law, to tick off boxes of good things accomplished in order to define oneself as a complete or true Christian. And this is something that Pastor Michael has warned against several times as he outlines the depth of meaning of the Ten Commandments in his recent messages. To understand the law the wrong way with the motivation that obeying the law by our own effort somehow completes the gospel is to risk coming under a curse because obeying the law perfectly cannot be done. But are we not to love the law as the Old, Ta Old Testament psalmist did? Are we not to love God's law and have it be our meditation all the day? 
So that is somewhat of a problem. How do the law and gospel interact? That's the question for the morning, really. How, in light of the gospel, do we consider the law? And to best answer that question, we should also consider the purpose of the law. In this same chapter in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he says that the law was added because of transgressions. This promise was given to Abraham, and then later the law was given. So grace came before law. The promise came hundreds of years before the law was given, some 430 years later, actually, at Mount Sinai. So the law was not given as a way to salvation, but to make it clear that we need salvation. It has been said that Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. The law is beautiful. It shows the holy character of God. It outlines what holiness is, what godliness looks like. But in doing so, it also demonstrates how far short we fall from that holiness and godliness. It then shows us that we need help. We need redemption. We need Christ. So this might be looked upon as the primary purpose of the law, to illustrate God's holy and righteous character and to show us how far short of it we fail, convincing us that we need a redeemer. And a second purpose follows from that. Even before we realize our need for redemption, the law holds sinful behavior in check. By God's common grace, the law serves as sort of a barometer of what's right and what's wrong. It holds people back from sinning as much as they otherwise would. It keeps people from unbridled sin. And there's a third and probably more significant purpose. After we see our need for Christ, after we have sincerely placed our faith in him and in his saving work, the law points out to us how we should be living as children adopted into God's family. After all, the psalmist who wrote Oh, how I love your law, also wrote, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In walking through life's pathways by that light, we must never lapse into thinking that we are earning our way into favor with God. We must never rely on our obedience as a qualification to be in God's family, to gain entrance into the kingdom. Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, we can't fulfill it, but Christ did fulfill it, and he did it for us, praise God. So the Christian life really is a balanced life. There's a vertical component, there's a horizontal component. The vertical component is that God first loved us. We are born from above. We love God, and we have love for others, as, as John Rohde taught us a couple of weeks ago. We have love for others because God first loved us. This is the vertical dimension. We are born from above, and we place our faith in the God-man, our Redeemer. And there's a horizontal dimension, too, and that's the one that often goes awry. Off to one side, we may shun God's law. We might avoid honoring it. We might adjust it to suit our purposes. We might even become anti-law and start making our own law. And on the other side, we might drift into relying on obedience to 
to the law as a means of defining ourselves as Christians, becoming legalistic in our thoughts and behavior, risking that follow-the-checklist attitude that might bypass the heart entirely. So the anti-law, the law unto oneself person, that error on the one hand, and the legalistic and possibly really pharisaical position at the other extreme, these are the two extremes that, that make for a dilemma if you find yourself lagging into one side or the other. It can be a little bit like walking the balance beam in gymnastics where you have to walk the straight and narrow, but you can get off being legalistic on one side or being anti-law and making a law unto yourself on the other. There is, however, a tertium quid, a Latin phrase. Latin phrases sometimes are helpful to encapsulate ideas. And tertium quid is one I like. It simply means a third way. So a, a third way that is radically different from two other alternatives. In this case, not just a sort of lukewarm middle ground, but a, a higher way. So this would be a, a way that is higher than either empty-hearted legalism on one hand or becoming anti-law and just going your own way on the other. And this can come about if we have been counted righteous in God's sight through placing our faith in Christ's finished work on the cross and realizing that we remain righteous in God's sight, even in the ups and downs of life as time goes on. We don't become unrighteous in God's sight when we stumble and sin. We don't become unrighteous in God's sight when we sin after we have placed our faith in Christ. Why? Well, of course, disobedience to God's law, rejecting the Holy Spirit's inner voice is clearly wrong. And since God loves his children, we can expect some discipline when we go astray. But we don't have to fear condemnation, ever. This is what Galatians 3.11 teaches us. It's what it's getting at when it quotes from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Not only do we gain life, spiritual life, through faith in Christ, but we live life in view of that faith, never losing sight of it or getting unbalanced or off track. In fact, in a later teaching in Galatians, there's further guidance given on this. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of this flesh. Walk by, in other words, live by the Spirit the Holy Spirit that you received when you placed your faith in Christ. And you won't gratify or start to live by the desires of the flesh. The Greek word translated flesh here is sarx, S-A-R-X, and it means flesh or it means sin nature, sinful nature. So keeping in step with the Holy Spirit's guidance as we walk through life will mean we aren't living according to our sin nature or our old man. So when we're born from above, we have a changed heart. It's, it's not a perfect heart, but it's a softened heart as opposed to a stony one. The old man is dead. The old nature, the sarks, the flesh, or the sin nature is dead. 
it's been killed, and we are now to live as new creations. So that means our deepest, our most basic desire as followers of Christ is to live lives of obedience because the Holy Spirit is influencing us since he has come to reside in us and we have bonded ourselves to Christ and placed our hope in him. We strive to live lives of obedience because we want to, not because we have to. As believers who have placed faith in Christ, we strive to be obedient because we want to, not because we have to. So how can we as Christians love the law? This law that becomes a curse to us if we understand it as something to be used as a measuring stick that qualifies us as being favored by God or as something that needs to be obeyed in order to complete the gospel. Well, we can love the law by going the higher way and seeing the law as it is expressed in the Old Testament, showing us God's holy character and how far short of that we come. So by coming under the law of Christ, as the New Testament terms it, we live our lives using the law as a lamp to our feet, walking through life, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guiding us in making decisions and governing our thoughts and actions, the motive not being to qualify us for the kingdom or to earn reward or to impress others, not to show that we are better than those sinners out there, not to please people, not to fit in, or anything else, but to please God and to bring him honor and glory. That is to be our heartfelt and most basic desire. Let us pray. Lord, help us never to undermine the gospel, to dishonor Christ by thinking that his work on the cross was somehow not powerful enough to save us, but that we have to add something. Help us not to misuse your beautiful law, to think that by obeying it better than unbelievers, this somehow qualifies us for the kingdom. Rather, give us changed hearts, hearts that desire to be like you, to walk in your way, to obey your law because we want to, not because we have to. This is a burden we could not bear, and we thank you that your burden is light. We thank you for bearing the curse for us. Thank you that you loved us before we loved you. Thank you for your saving grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.